This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. A lot going on, as we know, as there is, a, it feels like almost every day uh, when it comes to, of course, COVID-19. Um, and we are awaiting maybe uh, some emergency authorization when it comes to Moderna's vaccine. So we're following that. This is on a day when global virus cases passed 74.3 million deaths, top 1.6 million. And uh, we're just seeing these numbers continue to go higher. I should say that the U.S. hit a record 3,835 deaths yesterday. Let's uh, check in with Carrie Altoff. Uh, she is Associate Professor of Epidemiology at Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health. She's with us on the phone from Baltimore, the Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Um, Carrie, it's good to have you here with Tim and myself. Um, I always feel like on every day, I'm not quite sure where to start. What is, you think, first and foremost, when it comes to COVID and the vaccine today that you think our listeners need to be aware of? I think everyone needs to know that these hearings are going well. The the scientific rigor, which the investigators and the um, expert that have been brought in from lots of different places, the rigor with which they're looking at this data is really important. They are asking questions, which some of which there are answers for right now, some of which there are not yet answers for. And so there are ideas about how to continue these trials. It's really important to figure that piece out because right now, thankfully, so many people want this vaccine and we need to keep pushing for that because as these vaccines become available, of course, they only work if people actually choose vaccination. Carrie, we learned also in recent days about sort of the first here in the U.S., response that that wasn't so great to a vaccine, the first allergic response. And this was a healthcare worker in Alaska who uh, didn't have a history of allergic reactions, but this person was held overnight in the hospital and it got a lot of coverage. Is this something that should, how, how should people who want this vaccine think about news like this? So I would say this, we have to remember that um, reactions to vaccines, even severe allergic reactions do happen to a number of vaccines. It is something that's expected, and that's why when you get a vaccine, you're typically doing it in a healthcare setting where those individuals who are administering the vaccine are also trained in how to um, essentially give you an epi shot if you need it for anaphylaxis or other types of of, uh, allergic reaction. So first of all, we know that allergic reaction is something that happens. Of course, whenever there's a new product, we we scrutinize every single one of these events. We wanna know when it happened, how it happened, we want to know all of the information about it. But I think we also have to put it in the context of we know that these types of reactions happen to vaccines and other medical products. And we also know that there are a lot of people in these trials who have been receiving these vaccines. It's something we will definitely be keeping our eye out. But right now, there's no reason to believe that the anaphylaxis rate after a vaccination is is substantially higher with this vaccine than what would be expected. And Carrie, help me out, because this is something we've asked a lot of, um, you know, your colleagues at Johns Hopkins and, and other members of the medical community, is that my understanding is that if there is a severe reaction to a vaccine, that you know it within the first month. But again, we're working with new technology, new science. Um, is that accurate, though? 
So typically, you know, in order to link the actual reaction back to the vaccine, there's there's a long process that goes on where you really scrutinize everything. Of course, if it happens pretty quickly after uh, the vaccination, and, and some people say one month um, in some of the Moderna data that was presented, um, they were, I'm sorry, it was the Pfizer data that was presented, the, the, the reaction happened uh, quite a few months later. And so, you know, actually tying these reactions to the vaccine itself Sometimes people do put on a timeline like one month, but really it comes down to the data that are uncovered when that reaction is investigated. Just from the standpoint of, of, of somebody with your background, an epidemiologist who studies AIDS and, the, and it does AIDS research and HIV research, what do you make of the development of the vaccines that we're seeing right now? How big of a deal is this? It is absolutely scientifically historic. It is hours and hours and hours of scientists, you know, pouring their hearts and souls into trying to figure out how to get this pandemic stopped with one of the most important biomedical tools we will have against coronavirus, which is vaccination. We cannot say that it is the prominent tool yet in our toolbox. Of course, we only have one vaccine that's EUA'd. Hopefully, we'll have two probably by Monday, and um, we're, we're moving forward, but we still have to wear masks. We still have to social distance. We still have to take all of this very, very seriously. Even um, this week, there was an interesting analysis looking at excess deaths in persons 25 to 44. I mean, these are yeah. these are people that we, we've been saying, oh, you know, the, they're not at the greatest risk of death. And although that might be true, losing someone in that age group, someone who is a young mother or father, someone who is someone's brother or sister, a, a person who is a productive member of our society, losing them to COVID is, is really a, a tragedy, as are all the deaths due to COVID. But this excess death in this age group is really, it's shocking, it's compelling, and it just reminds us that although these vaccines are absolutely scientific history, it is also a time where we have to continue to rely on all the layers and all the tools in our toolbox to keep each other safe. So, Carrie, how do you see kind of the next few months playing out for our world here in the United States in terms of virus numbers and also vaccine rollout? So it's important to note that right now the best tools we have to reduce the number of new cases and to reduce the number of deaths are the tools that we've had since the beginning, really, which is wearing your mask, staying home unless you absolutely have to, and um, making sure that you're, you're keeping space from each other when, when you're in public or in any enclosed environment in particular, but even outside. So essentially what we're trying to do is just prevent that virus from transmitting from one person to another, right? Don't give it a host. So don't get too close is really the name of the game. And we need to put these practices in place and, and continue with these practices until we do have a more widely distributed vaccine. With the Moderna news today, you know, we hopefully will have a, a number of vaccines rolling out over the course of the next couple of months, which not only increases the numbers, but also interestingly, it, it could perhaps give people some options, right? So if, for hmm. example, a vaccine works better in older adults versus younger adults, um, one thing I just wanted to correct from earlier was that the case that I referenced um, of an individual developing anaphylaxis more than two months after being vaccinated this actually was prompted, it came from um, Jacqueline Miller, the Vice President for Infectious Diseases Development at Moderna during FDA hearings today. It was prompted by a question from Mark Sawyer, who's a professor of clinical pediatrics at the University of California, San Diego. 
And he said, you know, Moderna has done a number of phase one and two clinical trials of mRNA vaccines for really eight other pathogens over the course of the last few years. And so he said, hey, have you gone back into that data Hmm. and looked to see if those earlier trials, if there were reports of anaphylaxis among patients? And that's when Jacqueline Miller said, well, there was this one report in a woman with a soy allergy, and she developed this more than two months after being vaccinated. And so it does bring up this question of, okay, maybe this this um, triggering of anaphylaxis, it might be different across different vaccines, and we shouldn't just take what is happening in one and apply it to a different vaccine. And so, that's what Moderna's chief medical officer also noted, that you know we, we have to watch each of these vaccines carefully, right. and so we know who should be using which vaccine. So no blanket assumptions really along the way. I, I would be really hesitant right now to do a lot of blanketing yeah. assumptions. These these are big trials. We will be following these um, wonderful volunteers well into the future. And so we'll let the data show us what it needs to show us. But given that the supply of this is so constrained and there are so few vaccines available right now, when will people actually have the option to take one vaccine over another if they do have concerns about anaphylaxis? Well, I think for a lot of people, the, the choice in vaccines, of course, has to come after at least more than one um, receiving EUA, which hopefully will come very soon. But then it will be this rollout process coupled with the tiering process, right? So who is the top priority right now? It's the healthcare workers and the uh, individuals who are learning, living in long-term care facilities. And so once we get those populations vaccinated, um, hopefully we will have higher production of at least two vaccines. And so when this vaccine starts to roll out to the, to the more generalized population, there may be some more options. Yeah, really interesting. Hey, just real quickly, just got about 30 seconds. What are your hopes uh, for the incoming Biden administration come January? Um, I hope they stick to the science and they let the science lead the way. And they are putting together people and teams that are true um, followers of the science. Um, they are empathetic, compassionate people. And I think that is the unstoppable combination to have empathy and to move forward with the science so that this virus gets stopped and uh, we get back to, to living our lives in a healthy way. Yeah, I think that's a really good message in terms of really sticking to the science because it says so much. Um, Carrie, thank you so much. Dr. Carrie Althoff, Associate Professor of Epidemiology at Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health with us from Baltimore, the Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. But it is so interesting to him, like every time, you know, everybody goes back to and it makes sense, masks, social distancing, like there's just those basic things that still work. This is Bloomberg Business Week. With Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Well, the cover of Bloomberg Business Week this week is the work from home boom. It is here to stay. And as a result, get ready for some changes, including everyone, some pay cuts. It's really all about the urban exodus and the implications because it has the potential to impact so much in our world and economy. That story by Bloomberg News finance reporter Noah Buhire, who joins us on the phone from Seattle, along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber on the access line in Brooklyn. And Joel, kick it off for us. I mean, I do feel like this working from home thing has massive implications and Noah really lays it out in the story. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we've been watching this trend um, just evolve throughout the pandemic and, and it started with people, you know, basically that urban exodus, people leaving cities and going to the suburbs or or the country. And then instead of renting some of those places, people started buying and 
and then you know the employers started to catch up with with it eventually, and that's really kind of the new element. And I think the one that that really distinguishes Noah's story has been, you know, the the shift was at first it was just the real estate implications, but now it's about the pay implications. And Noah's reporting actually centers on a store on a company, Redfin, the real estate company, and they actually almost become the vehicle for the story. So Noah, tell us about this trend and, and what we've learned through Redfin. Yeah, well, I think you really, you, you really captured it. I mean, this is, a, this is a trend in HR policy right now. Uh, we, we've, we've had this massive experiment in working from home, and I think a lot of companies have found that it works for people. Um, it's not perfect. There are for sure some drawbacks. Um, but as, as we've gone through the months, companies, uh, I think responding to what they're hearing from their workforces, have realized that they can allow for a much greater uh, amount of remote work um, when the pandemic's finally over. And that's forced them to really reckon with uh, policies and how, how, you, how you actually make this work in a way that's that's fair and reasonable for your business. And um, really, it's just opened up a giant can of worms because, uh, you know, the cost of labor and the cost of living just vary so radically across the U.S. that um, you could create situations where, you know, if someone moved from the Bay Area to Phoenix or to Atlanta, they, 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 um, and they, they carried their salary with them, they just, um, you'd create a situation where um, you were paying way above market essentially. Okay, so the Redfin thing that's so interesting, though, is that once people sort of moved out uh, and the company had to grapple with this, and they were actually proactive, I think, in, in having a plan, basically. Um, and yeah. they basically realized that in order to implement this, they needed to have some version of like a localized pay policy, right? So, so tell us yeah, about I mean, how I, they actually went about I, implementing that. Yeah, so on some levels, like companies have been doing this for years, right? It's just um, uh, like they, they've thought about, well, if we open a, a, a new office in a new city, what do we pay people? The, what, what's interesting is that, that Redfin and I think a lot of other companies, you know, had to do this on a mass scale. So what Redfin did is they got a bunch of data on cost of labor and cost of living. Um, they're, they're a real estate company. They're in the home brokerage business. So they're, they're pretty attuned to this stuff and not have a lot of in-house data, but they got external data as well um, to try and craft a policy of what's fair. And, 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 you know, the data informed their decisions, but there were a lot of judgment calls at the end of the day. And, you know, they're still tweaking and trying to make sure, um, you know, their policy works for their people and that they can continue to recruit and, and retain the best people. Because at the end of the day, that's, that's really what this is about for, for companies is, you know, there's even with unemployment where it is today, there for certain kinds of jobs, there's still an insatiable appetite um, and demand for people. And, um, you know, as companies compete for talent, they, they want to make sure they're paying the right amount in the markets where those people want to be. No, there, there, there's something you explore in the piece, the, the economic implications of this, the idea that people are leaving higher cost areas, moving to areas that aren't as expensive. And, and with that, of course, if they're leaving a city or a state, with them goes tax base, uh, with them goes spending in that local economy. What are the long-term implications of, of this migration? Well, I don't think we know. 
yeah, mm. is, is, is the short, and short non-answer. But um, it certainly doesn't seem like it's going to be helpful for high-cost places like New York and San Francisco as they, you know, as the whole country tries to uh, dig itself out of, of, of the economic implications of the pandemic. I mean, it's not helpful when you have uh, high earners leave your city. Uh, but at the same, by you know, at the same time, like we just don't know at this at this point how extensive this is going to be, and and there are some real benefits to um, living and being near where the action is, where there are other people in your industry, and um, you know that could be a draw for people to come back to some of these high cost places. Well, that this is the thing we don't know, right, Noah? Yet whether or not this kind of urban boom, you know, and away from that urban boom, whether or not that's going to stick. Because if you talk to a Jamie Dimon, if you talk to the heads of a bunch of financial companies, if you talk to the head of Netflix, as you've put in your story, they're not so on board and think that this working from home thing is going to stick. Yeah, I mean, I think what we're seeing a lot of companies do, I mean, Google was a recent one, they're going to they're going to go towards a more hybrid model where people would come back in like three days a week. Uh, that doesn't necessarily free people up to leave the high-cost city, but it may mm. uh, encourage them to move to a suburb where they might not have done that before if they were commuting in five days a week. So it, there's there's both uh, moves across the country, but there are moves within metros, uh, which have real implications for housing costs. I mean, we've seen this yeah. all year, that, and Redfin has seen this in their business. I mean, suburban uh, houses, I mean, people want, uh, single-family homes with a yard because of the pandemic, but they're also looking forward to what life might be like when offices reopen. And maybe it's not so bad if you have to do that longer commute because you're only going in two, three days a week. So, Noah, you you, know, you got really good access at Redfin, and, and I'm, I'm going to ask you to extrapolate here. How willing were employees to take this pay cut? I mean, it, obviously, it's coming from HR. You're, you can keep the job, but you can have a pay cut. I think that is, to me, the biggest question here is, like, if employees are actually willing to do this, but that willingness also depends on just probably how big the pay cut is, right? So so talk to me about the willingness to participate. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the employees I spoke with who were, who were making these moves, I think ultimately felt like the numbers were fair. Um, and, and that's because, you know, when you move to some of these places where you're, you're pay is going to be lower, your cost of living goes down usually by even more. And um, Glenn Kalman, the CEO of Redfin, argued to me, and I, th- I was pretty persuasive on this point, but I think it's reasonable to expect that as more employers uh, offer remote work possibilities, we're going to see wages rise in some of these uh, yeah. places where the cost of labor is lower. So, you know, wages in Texas are going up. and. Right. Um, you might also see housing costs in places like Boston go up as well, but right. but to think that these things no, are static we, is, is, is not right. It's a great story. We're going to talk a bit more about uh, the migration to Texas a little bit later on. Noah Buhire and Joel Weber, thank you so much. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. This is Bloomberg Business Week on this Thursday. Carol Master along with Bloomberg Quick Take anchor Tim Stenovic. And top story at this hour, and I guess... Tim, I think it's going to be safe to say it's been a top story this week and it's going to end up being one of the top stories of this year. I think that's fair. 
right? We're talking Bitcoin, right? We're talking Bitcoin. And we saw cryptocurrency exposed stocks soaring today as well. We talked about that a little bit earlier. Bitcoin topping $23,000 per token, having only surpassed the $20,000 milestone for the first time. That was yesterday. Uh, so it is really just moving up. As Bitcoin surges to record high, Scott Minard, uh, our audience knows him well, Chief Investment Officer over at Guggenheim Investments. He believes the world's largest cryptocurrency's fair value still has a long way to go. He shared this with our colleagues over on Bloomberg TV. We made the decision to start allocating toward Bitcoin when Bitcoin was at 10000 um, It's It's a little more challenging uh, with the current price closer to 20000 But having said that, our fundamental work shows that Bitcoin uh, should be worth about $400,000. My understanding is Scarlett Fu over at Bloomberg TV, when she heard that, was like, what? Um, She was. We played this on on Quick Take this morning because it's just the reaction is is really one of, you know, whoa, $400,000? This is something that you know, is at $23,000 now. And that's got a lot of people scratching their heads. Exactly. So let's get into what we need to know about the rise in Bitcoin. Joining us is Bloomberg Intelligence commodity strategist, Mike McGlone. He's on the phone from Connecticut. Mike, so good to have you here with us. So first of all, um, what's behind the rise? Is it just a basic supply and demand or what's going on here? Hi, Hi, Carol. That's a lot of it. Bottom line, basic supply and demand is this year we cut supply by a half. And the last time we did that was 2016. In 2017, Bitcoin increased from 1,000 to 20,000. So I think we just broke above that 20,000 threshold. So what was resistance is now probably going to be key support for next year. And then you're open. Demand is really picking up from institutions. It's become a bit of institutional FOMO. And a key (laughs) factor is the macro. Look at debt to GDP, QE, MMT, all that is very positive for Bitcoin. I think what we're seeing also is there's a migration from what a lot of assets that used to be more focused on gold going to the new digital version. Of why, is, why is it you said that what's going on is, is good for Bitcoin? Is it just seen as a now new safe haven or what? Yeah, well, it's, it's a new safe haven for a future that's becoming more digitalized. Okay. And just think of what's really happened in this world. People don't want to really touch paper money, so everything is going digital. We don't really want to um, play with money. And then it's also that store of value. So it's got the macroeconomic factor. So I looked at, like to say, it's, it's not really a store of value yet because it's too young, but it's getting there. So based on my projections, the volatility of Bitcoin, which is about two and a half times that of gold on an annualized basis, will probably match the same volatility of gold in about four years. So basically by the time we get to the next wow. election and the next time that supply will be cut in half. Wow. So apart from FOMO, what are institutional investors seeing as the purpose for Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies when they're building portfolios? It's a store of value that has not really found its price yet. It's in that price discovery stage. So Hmm. it's kind of a unique space. And it's kind of scary to me. It's like it's become almost too bullish. But I don't see the bearish case unless it's something I can't predict, like in the technology, some kind of failure, some kind of hack or maybe some kind of banning. But other than that, the the supply and demand and just looking forward to this future going digital, it's a way to transport them and really hold on to wealth. But on the thumb drive or in your head or on your phone in the past, you know, gold's a little clunky. And then you have this world of what's the, uh, what are the, um, the competition, the competition is a stock market at an all time high and negative or zero bond yields. So it sounds like you're saying there's room for this to go higher, not necessarily 
too much concern about it going lower at least long term because i have friends you know when when this happens i i always get friends texting me hey should i buy bitcoin is it too late to buy bitcoin obviously i'm not giving financial advice you're not giving financial advice but how would you answer that question well i like to say you have to put yourself in the future if it fails everybody's going to forget about it and doesn't care if it succeeds the question yeah. would be grandpa why didn't you buy bitcoin when it was only twenty thousand dollars <laughs> so uh, or grandma and I think what Scott Miner's point about 400000 is pretty accurate. It's just a question of time because that's about gets to where it's similar on its same scale on a market cap basis versus gold. But for this year, I'm a little more conservative. I'm looking at 50000 as a key next resistance because that would put the market cap Jeez. around um, about a trillion versus 400 or so million now. But listen, Mike, you remember back in 2017 when it hit, was it around above 18000 and then it dropped down in early 2019, down to about 3,800, 3,900. We should have bought, I guess. (laughs) Well, yeah, that was another entry point, right? But I mean, we have seen, you know, a tremendous run-up and another drop in this before. Is there something different about the momentum right now? That's the right question to ask, Carol. It certainly is true. It did have a massive drawdown, just like Amazon dropped 90% in the early 2000s. And the big difference this time is that was more speculative excess rally for really tech geeks. Now it's the mainstream getting in. There's futures. There's um, central banks, potentially, but there's corporate treasuries, billionaires, and even insurance companies who are just looking to buy dips below. And the big difference is now if you look at volatility on Bitcoin, it's lowest ever versus the stock market and versus gold. So it has major fundamental technical underpinnings. Like I look at it I'm like, okay, what can go wrong here? And I just try to figure it out right now. More of the same means price should go higher. What about the emergence of other cryptocurrencies? And we saw that a few years ago when Bitcoin got really popular. Doesn't that threaten Bitcoin's rise? Tim, that's a key point, and it's really survivor bias. Last year, there was about 4,000 tradable cryptocurrencies. Now there's about 8,000 based on coinmarketcap.com, but it's a survivor bias that matters. So the Bloomberg Galaxy Crypto Index traps, tracks about 10 of those. So it's the survivors. The winners will win and do well. But the thing is, they don't have the adoption, the oomph, and the robustness and basically, they're just not adopted like Bitcoin. They might be better, but they're not the best store of value. So the way I like to dis- de- describe Bitcoin, it's basically a collectible. There's only going to be 21 million over ever created. There's 18.5 that have already been created. And it's the one that's being adopted. The market, the world has already said, okay, this is the one versus like gold is the one. And there's you know a bunch of other commodities and there's so, a bunch of other precious metals. So wait, really quickly, 15 seconds. Is it a collectible or is it a currency? I think it's more of a collectible and less ah, of a currency. That is really wow. wild. Um, ah, you were the perfect voice. Thank you so much. Um, really, really appreciate it because I think we were all just, we're kind of watching it and understanding it, right, Tim? Yeah, we are. And I just sent my team a note saying, we got to get Mike on Quick Take talking Bitcoin. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Bloomberg Intelligence commodity strategist Mike McCallone. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
It is time for the drive to the close. And joining us this Thursday, back with us is Alan Lance. He is research director at LanceGlobal.com and president of Allen B. Lance and Associates. He is one, with us once again on the phone from Toledo, Ohio. Alan, nice to have you back with us with Tim and myself. Um, how are you? What's Ohio like right now? I'm doing well. We got an inch of snow compared to your uh, 12 or 13, I guess. So yeah. we'll, we'll take that. But everything's going well here in Ohio. All right. Um, what's the virus with you guys right now? Well, we uh, basically have been more open than uh, our neighboring state of Michigan, uh, but, but we do have a 10 p.m. curfew, uh, so businesses are closed and, and uh, restaurants are still uh, open to uh, anywhere from a 25 to 50 percent capacity. Um, and uh, so far, everything's stayed open as opposed to Michigan, which is, has locked down another yeah. uh, few weeks. So. Yeah. Well, we are certainly not seeing these concerns play out in the stock market on pace to be a record day, as we heard from from Charlie earlier. Um, Alan, I want to get your thoughts on valuations right now, because our producers tell us that, uh, you know, one thing that you see right now is that this is different than 2007, despite the fact that we see stocks at highs and we see real estate at highs right now, too. What's your take? Yeah, we get that question uh, about uh, 2007. Uh, we had warned that uh, we couldn't really find anything in the uh, international or domestic equity arena or real estate arena that, that was uh, uh, of uh, in bargain territory. And uh, today, I, I think it's different. Like I can see the comparisons because we're hitting new all-time highs again. But uh, you, you know, you, we've had energy that's been down uh, tremendously. This year has actually been pretty you know, predictable. We were we were. Um, even though it's been a strange year mm. and, and the volatility has been excessive, we were taking profits the end of January, early February. The market went up another three weeks, and then um, obviously we had the John Templeton, you know, uh, by when there's blood on the street uh, type of march where you know there were some incredible bargains, and then you know the markets recovered uh, as almost like a textbook in textbook fashion where, where uh, you, you saw the quality dividend companies moving up, you know, right after the stay-at-home surged. And then uh, now, you know, the fourth quarter, we've seen uh, the cyclical small caps and internationals catching up, so the rally's broadening out. And, and you know, I, I think that's healthy. Uh, well, in 2007, what we had is everything moving up from, you know, utilities in China to, uh, right. uh, you know, every, every category in the U.S., and, and, and there, we really couldn't find any bargains. We're still finding bargains here. All right. Don't judge me. Don't hate me. But, Alan, I felt like this was a year where you could time the market, because I thought about it early this year, too. It's like we just ran up so quickly before kind of the COVID fallout, and I'm like, God, you know, if I kind of just dropped out in February, it would have been a pretty decent year. And then, of course, when the market fell off, you knew that there was going to be. History has taught us that the government's going to help us out. The Fed's going to help us out. You know, it was almost, as you say, kind of textbook predictable. And I do feel like we're getting to a market environment where I know it goes against everything I've ever learned about timing the market. But it, but we know that when the market drops off, the 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 you know program trading kicks in and then the market goes up again and then when it gets too lofty it sells off a little bit and then it you know i mean i just feel like we're getting into that kind of a rhythm yeah and it's a supply and demand carol so you're, mm-hmm. you're totally spot on where we're now you're seeing the ipos but again unlike you know 1999 these ipos are still high quality mm-hmm. so i think you know you're you're going to get that uh, supply 
you know, uh, filling up the demand, and, and then it's going to be a situation where less and less quality IPOs will come out in 2021, and that's the time, again, where, you know, you hate to do it, but, you know, you got to time a little bit and, and take some money off the table. You know, the, the other thing that, that we like is we're seeing takeovers, you know. We talked yeah. this summer about Alexa, you know, Alexian Pharmaceuticals, and, and that get a, you know, a, a nice 30 40% premium takeover, and, and I wouldn't even sell it here. I think you could have, uh, you know, another bid coming in, or I don't mind owning the AstraZeneca, you know, because mm. that stock has underperformed. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we're in 1999, you got to take over. Would you run with it, cash it out, and, and you don't wait for it to close? Now you, you can still, you know, say that the stock's trading at, at historically low multiples, even being taken over. And part of that is, you know, there was a two-product company, and and with AstraZeneca, it's going to be, you know, uh, uh, higher margins and, and uh, uh, multiple expansion because uh, it was discounted because, you know, they didn't have the pipeline and they, they didn't have a broad selection of, of pharmaceuticals. And, and there are still other companies like that that I think offer opportunity that investors have ignored most of the year. So, so in that respect, it is it has been, uh, you know, unexpected year from the, uh, you know, volatility standpoint, but really textbook and in, in design uh, all the way through. Alan, are you getting lots of questions from clients about Bitcoin right now? It's a story we've been talking about all day, hitting a new record. It's below 23,000 right now at 22,700. But is that something that clients are showing interest in? Yeah, Bitcoin, I mean, you know, we saw that attractive, uh, you know, into the sell-off again because, uh, you know, just even Amazon went down, you know, uh, in the early days of, of March and in, into the pandemic. Now, you know, th- those are one of the areas and, and some of these cult-type stocks that, you know, we would not, uh, you know, we would not be chasing. So so when, when we get a lot of inquiries uh, from subscribers and members about, you know, should we be buying Tesla? Should we buy, mm. be buying Bitcoin? It's usually uh, a little late in, in in the game, and we don't really want to participate. Scott Minard says Bitcoin's going to 400000 <laughs> So I'm just going to tell you, Alan, it's way early in the game, according to him and some others. Especially when, if you think about it, I, I go back to, you know, my economics, you know, um, work. It's just like supply and demand. There's only going to be a limited number of Bitcoins. That by kind of its own essence just creates, you know, an entity that's going to go up. Yeah, the, the the problem is the same thing with blockchain is everybody has to participate, you know, with, with the Internet and emails. You had that. Will you have that with Bitcoin or will something else come out? So so Bitcoin in itself, you know, if that ends up to be the, you know, digital cryptocurrency, then then all that, uh, you know, hyperbole, is it, you know, will, will, will come to, to fruition. But, uh, you know, are you willing to take that risk that, you know, something else you know, won't supersede it or, or yeah. take over. So many times when you're an industry leader, uh, you know, you, you don't uh, uh, end up, uh, you know, 10 years from from, from that day uh, be the one that, that still is out in the forefront. And, and that's where investors have to realize the risk that they're taking. Just wish I'd bought it when it was like, you know. You and me both. Fraction of a cent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you could have thrown like 20 bucks at it, you know, even $100 at it. And it would just would have been. But we'd still be here doing this because we love it, Carol. That is actually very, very true. Um, good stuff. Good stuff. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.